Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. I just thank you for that awareness. God, I, I, would, I ask that you would just continually remind us of, of the power that's within us. That your word says that the same power that raised Christ from the dead now lives and dwells inside of us. God, I ask that we would live with an awareness that every day we can do the will of the Father to see the kingdom of heaven come and touch earth. I just thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, sometimes we complicate things or sometimes in our own minds we, we make things bigger than they are. But never underestimate just single acts of obedience by people that are in love with God, that have laid their lives down, and are living to see the kingdom of heaven come and the will of God be done here on earth just the way it is in heaven. Um, don't get overwhelmed by the world that you live in and by society, by looking around and hearing about how bad things are getting. Don't get overwhelmed by, by what you see and what you hear. Be overwhelmed by the love that the Father has for the people of this earth and by the power that, that lives inside of you and rests upon you. Let that be the thing that overwhelms you. Live in response to His goodness. Live in response to His promise. Live in response to the, to the power of God that to the promise that, that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Let that be the thing we live in response to. And so when, when you see things get a little darker, just realize that that means that you shine brighter. It means that, that what's inside of you is more visible and more on display than it was. And as, as the gray disappears and black becomes black, light becomes light. And people are faced with this choice in the way that we live presents them with the choice of seeing who the Father is and what He's like. So Jesus is saying to Peter, He says, how could you be with me this long and ask me what the Father looks like? If someone's lived with you, around you, in contact with you, if you've been part of someone's life for, 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 for three years, that question should be answered. What, what is the Father like? Show us what He's like. Because he said, Jesus said, I came to do the will of the Father. I came to reveal the Father. And he says, the Father sends me into the world, so I also send you. If people ask us after three years, what is God like? We should be able to look at them. This isn't a prideful thing. This is saying we're following Jesus. We're actually following him. We've laid our lives down to, to serve him and, and to be used by him. We should be able to look at people. And, and maybe you wouldn't use that language just because, you know, you want to guard their hearts and you don't want people to think something. But... But that, that should be able to, to be said, like, how have you known me for this long and you don't know what God's like? Because the fruit of the Spirit displays the nature of God. It's patience and kindness and mercy and gentleness and self-control and meekness and humility and all the things that, that the, the Spirit of God, joy and and if we're following after Jesus and we're really filled by that same Spirit that raised Him from the dead, if people live around us and, and live amongst us after years, we should be able to look at Him and say, why are you asking me what He's like? 
I came to show you what he's like. Uh, not that, you know, we do it perfectly. Yeah. There's more in you than you realize. You're, you're, you're God's plan A and B and C and D. Yeah. He chose to use you. He chose to use me. He chose to use us to manifest himself and to show the world what he's like. Uh, we're going to take up our offering now. Um, and then we're going we're gonna to get into the message. I'm really excited about the word I have for today. Um, but man, just let that, let that rest on us. That Hey, you can just pass the baskets now. That's fine. Uh, just let that rest on us a little bit. That, that, that Jesus said, I came to reveal the Father. And then he said to the disciples later, he said, as the Father sent me into the world. In other words, the Father wanted to show the world what he was like. Everybody had all these ideas of what God was like and who he was and so he sent Jesus to show the world what he was like, to show the world the love that he had for them. It says, because he so loved the world, he gave us. Jesus didn't come because God hated you and wanted to love you. He came because he loved you. For God so loved you that he sent his son. It wasn't that he was in heaven with, full of hatred for you and decided, man, I'd really like to love them. I guess I'll send my son, and if anyone believes in him, then I'll start loving him. It says that God so loved you that he sent his son to die. Because he loved you, not so that he could. And now we have that great privilege and honor and responsibility to represent Jesus to the world, to show the world what he's like, and to bring them into an encounter with the Father, to show them what the love of God looks like. As displayed in our lives. Um, good morning. Is it still raining out? Is that what I hear? Gosh. We need Elijah to go pray for it to stop for a little while. Or. <laughs> isn't that crazy that James said that? He said Elijah was a man just like us. And when he prayed, this happened. Now you read the letters that, the, that, that James and Peter and these guys, John, wrote to the church. They, they seemed super bent on making sure that we realized that there was nothing that anybody had that we don't have. He says that the prayers of a righteous man availeth much, for Elijah was a man just like us. Peter says, to those who have inherited a faith like ours. He's like, these guys wanted us to know, they wanted the church to know, listen, we're not to be worshipped. We're to be seen as an example of what it looks like to be used by the Father and to be led by His Spirit. They were, they were really, really bent on that. They, they, it, was, it was constantly something that was in their teaching. It was like, hey, don't put Elijah up on a pedestal. Use him as an example of what it looks like when a righteous man prays because the prayers of the righteous man availeth much. You know, the amazing thing is, is that back in the Old Testament, it could be said that, that, that Elijah was a righteous man, and that was a rare thing, that in the New Covenant, that all have been made righteous. For if by the sin of one man, how many were made sinful, how much more than by the obedience of one man, Christ, will the many be made righteous? So you're included in that. That means everybody's in. It means there's no super Christians. It means every single one of us is. Don't exclude yourself. Because God doesn't. 
You know, that's why the enemy is so bent on trying to get you to exclude yourself because he knows the heart of the Father towards you will never change. So if he can't change God's heart towards you, he'll try to change your mind towards God. It's the truth. He can't change the heart of God. He has seen, listen, if anybody has, he's seen the faithfulness and the grace and the mercy of God displayed over and over and over and over again. He watches. He thinks he has Peter. When Peter denies Jesus three times, he's thinking, I got him. There's no way he can fulfill the destiny that God put him on this earth to fulfill. He called him the rock, or said the revelation that he had was the rock, and he said, I'm going to build my church on that revelation. And he has this plan for Peter's life, but I got him. There's no way that God could use him now. I mean, come on, he wouldn't even admit to a little girl that he knew who Jesus was. How's he going to do the things that, 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 God, that Jesus said he's going to do? And then he watches as Jesus comes and says to Mary, go tell my disciples, my brothers, and Peter, that I'm coming for them. What's he saying? He's saying, There's, go tell my brothers, go tell the, the disciples, go tell the guys that I that I walked with. Go tell them that I'm coming for them in Galilee. But he says Peter by name. Why? He knows that if he doesn't include Peter, Peter will exclude himself. If he doesn't include Peter by name, Peter will exclude himself because of what he's done. And he wants to make sure that Peter understands nothing's changed, Peter. You've never out my love for you. I'm still that same one who's on the porch waiting for the heart of one person to turn towards me. And I'll run to them and overwhelm them and let them know. I'm not holding this against them. My plan hasn't changed. It's amazing. And the enemy's seen it. Can you imagine the anger? Like, just think about this. Every one of our lives, when we were lost in sin, when we were in our darkest place, living our lives as completely opposite to the gospel as was humanly possible in our life, some of us did a better job than others, but we've all done a pretty good job. And at that moment, when your heart came alive to the reality of God and the gospel overwhelmed you and you saw your need for a Savior and you turned, can you imagine the horror in hell as the demonic realm saw that this one who they thought they had, who they thought that God could never use, had suddenly been restored and all of a sudden everything is changed because where once you walked around covered and your sins were as scarlet, now you have this bright, spotless white robe on. And you shine like the sun because it's the glory of God within us that shines. And they see that. Can you imagine? And so think about this. There's people being born again every minute of every day. There's this constant celebration in heaven. And there's this constant torment in the demonic realm as they see that people who they thought they had controlled and they thought they had pushed far enough that God couldn't and God wouldn't and God wasn't. And once again, they see the heart of the Father just exploding all over the place. Now think about this in our lives, now that you're born again, every single day the choices you make either cause a celebration in heaven or a celebration in the demonic realm. The great cloud of witnesses is either cheering or going, oh, don't do that. Come on. And it's our choice that determines which happens. We get to choose every single day to be a standard bearer and to live the life that we're called to live and to follow Jesus and to honor him with our choices and to submit to God, resist the devil and make him flee. You get to do that every single day. All right, if you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Kings chapter 19. That was the free part. Now you get what you tithe for. (laughs) 
I'll retire that one. <laughs> no, sometimes it just you just realize, you know what, one too many times. <laughs> Someone said that was a good call. I'll review the tape later. Someone just earned themselves in the next week's message. First Kings chapter 19, verse 4. He's talking about Elijah here. I want to give the context for this because I, I never like to just, if, if you were to always read out the whole context, it'd take forever sometimes, but I never want to just pull something and, and not have context for it. It's a pretty well-known story, so I think the context is it's pretty well-known, but it's, it's Elijah has this epic battle against the prophets of Baal on top of the mountain, and he calls down fire after they tried and they couldn't. He wets the wood, and then he says it's going to rain, and he tells the king, king, you better get off this mountain. Um, and he runs and beats a chariot, and he just has the most amazing time with God. And then this happens. Jezebel gets word of what happened to the prophets of Baal, and she decides and sends word and says, let it be done to me as was done to those prophets if I don't, if you're still alive within a day. Basically, if I don't have you dead within 24 hours, let me die. And Elijah hears this threat, and he's just, distraught he takes off and so in verse 4 we pick it up it says but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die and said it is enough now lord take my life for i'm no better than my father's then as he lay and slept under a broom tree suddenly an angel touched him and said to him arise and eat and he looked and there was a by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water so he ate and drank and lay down again and the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank. And he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights, as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And so he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. And he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks into pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, a still, small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave, and suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, Shaphat at Abel Mahola, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the word of Haziel, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the, word, the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all those whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's alive, that it's quick, that it's sharper than a two-edged sword, that it divides between soul and spirit, God, that, that it teaches, that it instructs, that it corrects, that it challenges, God, that it changes us. Father, that it's not just stagnant words on a page that we read once and we're done and we commit it to memory, Father, but it's actually your, your, your word 
that comes alive inside of it, that it is life, Father. And I thank you that as today we, we read and we study and we speak from your word, Father, that you would speak to us, Holy Spirit, that you would take these words and make them life, that they would be seeds that would go into the, the soil of our heart. They would produce fruit, God, that a world that doesn't know you would taste the fruit of our lives, that you're producing in us, God, and they would see that you're good. In Jesus' name, amen. So I, I, I hate when they have all the, 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 the words, next, the names next to each other, you know, and all the places and all that stuff. I wish he would have just made it simple and used, like, you know, that <laughs> Jim from Greer. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I don't know how to get a change it, but, man. Um, so, so, so Elijah has this, this epic battle, and, and now he has heard this threat of, of Jezebel, and he takes off. And, and, and we talked about this, this part of it before, that, you know, no matter what you've done the day before, you're only as strong as your belief in God that day. You, you can see God do the most amazing things through your hands. You can call down fire to consume wet wood. You can pray and make it rain. You can do all the most amazing things. You can see God move through you so powerfully. Tomorrow you will only be as strong as your faith in God tomorrow. You can't coast on yesterday. Yesterday can encourage you of who he is, but if you don't believe that's still who he is today, it won't do anything for you. And so he has this amazing thing. He runs and beats a chariot. He calls down fire from heaven. Like, if we had one of those experiences, I feel like the, we would, our faith would just be so huge and we wouldn't have any problem believing God the next day. He has all these experiences, and yet the next day he hears one threat from that woman Jezebel, and he decides, you know what, but here's what I was thinking about as I was reading this, is I think that part of what happened to him was he thought, you know what, if they didn't believe that, they'll never believe anything. I think that as much as he was fearful of Jezebel, I don't think that that was the main thing that was propelling him to want to go and die because he says, I'm no better than my father's. What's he saying? He says, the people still, after, even after that. Like, I think when he told Ahab, you better get down off the mountain, O king. This is a man who had been hunting him, who wanted his life, and I think he was expecting Ahab is going to go down the mountain, and he's going to tell the people what happened, and the hearts are going to return to the Lord because that's what Elijah wanted, was to see the children of Israel return to the Lord. And yet, all he hears in return is, they still want to kill you. They're not rebuilding the altars. They haven't repented. There's been no fast called. They're not sitting in sackcloth and ashes mourning their sin. They want to kill you. And I think at that point, Elijah thought, what else could I do? I'm no better than my fathers. I'm no better than the people before me who declared the word of the Lord to these people only to have them rebel against God. I've failed, let me die. And so he, he goes off to be alone and has a little bit of a pity party. And he just curls up underneath this tree. And I think he genuinely was, he didn't bring food with him, he didn't bring water with him. I think he was planning that he's just going to curl up here and he's going to die. And so he asked God, don't take my life. Like, don't make me starve to death, you know, don't make this long and drawn out and painful. God, just take my life because I don't want to live anymore. 
And he curls up to go to sleep, probably expecting that, hey, if when I prayed and said, don't rain, it didn't rain. When I prayed and said, rain, it rained. When I called down fire, fire came. When I ran, I ran a chariot. If I ask God to let me die, surely he's going to answer that prayer as well. God will answer every single prayer that a righteous man prays that lines up with his will for their life. But don't you dare think that you can start praying prayers based on your will and on wrong belief and God's going to answer them. He says, whatever you ask in my name, according to my will. It wasn't his will for Elijah to die. That was a useless prayer. But I think Elijah really believed that was it, and he laid down underneath the tree. So God comes to him and wakes him up and says, as he comes as, a, you know, as an angel, the angel of the Lord comes and wakes him up and says, you need to get up and eat. And I think this was the first clue that Elijah missed that God still had more for him to do. I think what God's trying to get Elijah to do is to realize, I have more things for you to do, Elijah. Life isn't over. Your, your time here on earth isn't done. There's much more I have in store for you. I need you to get up, and I need you to eat. And so Elijah gets up and eats. And, and I also find fascinating that God, who could do anything he wanted to, who just gave him the ability to outrun a chariot, who just gave him the ability to call down fire, to make it not rain, to make it rain, all that stuff— it actually tends to Elijah's physical needs. Like, he could have just told him, get up and go in my strength, but he tends to Elijah's physical needs. And so Elijah gets up, he eats, he drinks, goes back to sleep, and once again, the angel of the Lord comes to him, says, arise and eat. Because the journey is too great for you. Now he's letting him know, because Elijah maybe didn't get it the first time, hey, I have something for you to do. Life doesn't end underneath this broom tree. But what I'm asking of you is too great for where you're at right now, so I need you to get up, and I need you to eat something. Why didn't God just... And, it says, and then it says, and he went 40 days and 40 nights in the strength of that meal, in the strength of that food. In other words that food that he ate the second time sustained him for 40 days and 40 nights. Why didn't God just do that the first time? You ever wonder things like that? Like, I read these stories and I go, God, if you were going to do that, why did you, why not the first time? Like, if, you know, I could see if God was going to, for 40 days and 40 nights, wake him up with an angel and give him food to eat along his journey, but God planned to sustain him off of one meal of food and water for 40 days. Why not do it the first time? I think there's a few reasons. I was, I was, I was really pressing into that and praying, and I think one of the things God said is because I'm God and I do what I want. Not really, because sometimes we, we think that like God should do things in an orderly fashion the way we would think is an orderly fashion. And so we go, God, if you were going to do that, it doesn't make sense to use one meal just to have him sustained for one day, and then the next meal sustains him for 40 days. You should have just done it the first time. And I think sometimes God says, listen, you think you have me figured out, and you think that I play according to your rules. I'm God. But I also think, too, maybe there was something to the fact that Elijah just needed to eat something and sleep for a little while because he's an emotional wreck. You know, sometimes you don't need a sermon. You just need to eat something and go to bed. No, seriously. You don't, you know what I mean? You, you don't need ministry sometimes. You just need to have a good meal and go to sleep. 
You're emotional. You're a wreck. You, you know, you've been running nonstop. You're worn out and tired. Listen, this happens. And God actually tends to his physical body. It doesn't make you less spiritual to say, you know what, I'm worn out right now. I need to get something to eat and I need to go to sleep and I'm not making any decisions until I do. There's nothing less spiritual about that. This is a man who knows God's provision. This is a man who came off of one of the greatest displays of God's power being performed through him. And yet God says, here, eat something and then go back to sleep for a while. And then he comes back the next time. He says, okay, now you're ready. Because sometimes God wants to do something through you that's supernatural, but he wants to make sure the natural is in line first. I thought so. Because these things, like, well, this is how, like, when you read the Bible, let these, let these questions, like, irritate you and go after answers to them. Like, when that question pops up in your head, don't just be like, oh, I don't know. Just ask him, like, God, why twice? If you were going to do it, why do it the first? Why did you have him walk around Jericho seven times? If you were for seven, seven days, and on the seventh day, seven times, and bl- then blow the trumpet. If you were going to make the walls all fall down, why not just make them fall down the first time? Because I wanted to show them that even if they don't understand what I tell them to do and they don't see immediate results, I want them to be obedient to my voice, not obedient to results. And because I want them to just obey me and trust me. So if I tell them to do something for six days in a row and nothing happens, I want them to be just as excited about doing it on the seventh day as they were on the first day because they're excited about hearing my voice, not about the response that it brings all the time immediately. Because you can become addicted to results and start gauging whether or not you heard God by the result immediately. Eventually, every word of God will bear the fruit that it's supposed to, but it doesn't always happen immediately. And if you judge the success of hearing God's word or the success of following in obedience by what you see immediately, you'll give up and you'll leave things in the ground to die that were never meant to be left there. Think about a farmer. He goes out into his field and he sows corn. If he comes back the next day and judges whether or not it was good seed or he did it right by what he sees... He walks away a failure and never sees the beautiful rows of corn pop up eventually over time. But ask these things. Let it irritate you until you go after him for an answer. I think he loves that. When he places this holy irritation inside where you read something, you go, it just doesn't really make sense, God, why? And that's where like the deep things of God are revealed is when we go after these things. You know, there's always the things that are on the surface that everybody gets, but the deep things of God are for those. He says, then you'll find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Like when, you, when you're not okay just gleaning from the surface what everybody else is gleaning, but you say, God, I want to see something here that I haven't seen before. God, I want you to show me something. I want you to teach me. Then you have something to give. It says, the angel of the Lord said, arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. He's, he's letting him know, listen, there's still a journey in front of you. That God's always interested in coming to you when you're at a place where you feel like there's nothing left and letting you know I have so much more for you. There's always more. Always. And so it says in in verse 8, it says, So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and he spent the night in that place and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? How many of you guys know when God said, Adam, where are you? He wasn't asking for his own sake. How many of you know that every question God has ever asked you has been to reveal what's in your own heart and what's going on in your own life? He's never been stumped. 
Think about this. He has never been in heaven going, I really hope Roy has the answer to that. Because I don't. No, he knows. But sometimes it's good for what's in our heart to just come out of our mouth so that we can hear what's really going on. So that we can actually see. Because sometimes there's clues that we give ourselves in the things that come from our mouths because it reveals what's in our heart. And this is no exception. He actually, when, when he answers this question, he shows why he's there and what's really going on in his heart. And, and it's, it's not so much fear of Jezebel. He looks at it, he says to God, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. In other words, God, I've tried to serve you. I've been zealous. I've, I've, I've tried to be obedient. I've done what you've called me to do. I feel like I, you know, to the best that I know how, I have done what you've called me to do. I've spoken, declared your word to your people as a prophet, and, and I've done what you've called me to do. I, I've, I've done every act that you've called me to do. I, I've believed you and trusted you, and I've seen your faithfulness, and I've seen your hand. And he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And others, he says, listen, I've done all this stuff, and this is the way your people have responded. The response of people is not what we're supposed to use to gauge whether or not we've been obedient to what God's called us to. That's how we get in a trap and we become a people pleaser. That's what Paul said. He said, am I now speaking to please men or God? In other words, like, Jesus, he says, listen, if you want any part, he gets this huge crowd, right? That's what everybody that's in ministry wants. You want a huge crowd, right? Because you want to have as many people as possible. And listen, there's nothing wrong with wanting a bunch of people to hear the revelation that God's given you. Just make sure that's the reason why you want there to be a big crowd is because you want there to be a big impact on the earth. And, but, but he finally gets what, what, what is considered success in today's ministry. There's this huge crowd of people, and Jesus looks out at this crowd and says, if you want any part of me, you have to drink my blood and eat my flesh. And they all turn around and they walk away. If, if, he, if Jesus is living his life by the standard of success that we have put out as the standard of success today, he is a complete failure. His disciples should have looked at him and been like, you need to read How to Win Friends and Influence People because you're not doing a good job with that. And suggest maybe that he goes to some politically correct training and some seminars and learn how to talk to people because you can't just say things like that, Jesus. It's true. We would do that. If Jesus wasn't living for the approval of the Father... In living for the approval of men, he goes home that day crushed and beats himself up for what he said. He needs counseling and inner healing. Seriously. He's a failure. He's not living for the response of people. He wants them to respond correctly. Listen, you can tell that he wanted them to respond rightly. You don't get a I don't care attitude. Jesus never had a I don't care. I'm just going to say what God tells me to say, and if people like it, they like it. If they don't, they don't. I don't care. Now, that means you're probably a jerk, and you probably actually care so much that you've decided to pretend you don't. And you can tell that Jesus cared because he went and sat on a hill, looks over the very people that walked away from him, and says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stoned the prophets, how I would have loved to gather you under my wings like a mother hen does with her chicks, but you wouldn't let me. He's weeping over the response of the people. Yet you'll notice he doesn't go and apologize to them and say, look, maybe I said that wrong. Maybe that was a little harsh. Come back. We've got better coffee. We've got better donuts. 
We have multiple services, contemporary and traditional. You can pick whatever you like. Oh, there's nothing wrong with having traditional and contemporary. I'm just saying, it, you notice that Jesus didn't gauge whether or not he was doing what he was supposed to do by the response of people. But Elijah kind of does. He kind of reveals that in his heart, the people not responding, he equates to, I'm no better than my father's. And he's letting their lack of response be the thing that dictates whether or not he thinks that he actually can be used by God. Let me settle for every person in here. You can be used by God. Now, never let any lack of response or any wrong response ever change that. Never let that be questioned. And then he says this, and I alone am left. And they seek to take my, in other words, I'm the last voice of truth they have and they want to kill me too. You, you know that sometimes if you're not careful, if you're living for the response of people or you're living emotionally or you're living in fear, you can actually forget what you know to be true. And even though it's true, it has no effect on you, so it might as well not be true. Because a chapter before, he meets with Obadiah and Obadiah says, you're not the only one. Haven't you heard? Haven't you heard how I took a hundred of the prophets of the Lord and kept them from being killed and I split them up and I put 50 in this cave and 50 in that cave and I've been serving them food and water? In other words, he's saying, listen, you're not alone. You're not the only one left. There's a hundred that he knows of. And here's the thing. We'll find out in a minute. We don't know everything. Our perspective is limited. But even what we do know, we can forget if we allow what we see in front of us to be the thing that makes the determination of how we're doing, whether we're being su successful in doing what God's called us to do, and whether or not it's worth it to keep going. Because he already knew there was a hundred prophets left, and yet he lets what's happening in front of him make him forget that. That's why it's not good for man to be alone. You need people around you that will say to you, wait a minute. You need people around you that you feel safe to say what's in your heart because they're not going to rebuke you and reject you for it. You, you notice that God doesn't look at him and say, you idiot. In fact, the first time, God doesn't even respond to him at all in, that, in, in a way of trying to tell him the truth. You know, sometimes there's value in just listening to what's in people's heart and not trying to correct it immediately. Just being someone that they can actually show you what's in their heart by what comes out of their mouth. You know you need people like that, that you can actually open up and say what's in your heart then let it come out of your mouth? And sometimes it's just good for us to hear what's in our heart, but it's really good to have people around us that know the truth so that when we say something like that, they can be Obadiahs that say, hey, uh, I know you feel that way, but there's something you don't know. There's actually more than you know going on. And so, so, so Elijah answers God's question. I wrote this down. I, I, I want to read this actually. And I wrote, that's why it's not good for man to be alone and isolation is so bad, or even worse, finding community with people who are similarly discouraged. You know, even worse than being alone is being with a bunch of people who are similarly discouraged and believe the same deception that you believe. Yeah. Make sure it's community, common unity, not common offense that brings us together. Because a lot of groups are brought together by a common offense, and they'll eventually destroy each other. So God hears Elijah's heart and he says this to him. Verse 11, he says, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. 
Behold, the Lord passed by, and there's a strong wind that tears up the mountains, breaks the rocks into pieces before him, but he wasn't in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire. The Lord wasn't in the fire, and after the fire, there's a still, small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave, and suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He asks him the same question. But there's a big difference this time. Because this time he's heard the voice of the Lord. I don't know what the Lord said to him. It's not recorded, but it says a still small voice came to him. And when he heard that, he had enough courage. In spite of the fact that there was just a raging wind, a brutal earthquake, and a bunch of fire, whatever was spoke to his heart was something that gave him the courage to stand up, put his mantle over his face, and walk to the entrance of the cave and stand before the Lord. And the Lord asks him one more time, what are you doing here? You know what's funny is, is, is this, is that when you read that about how the Lord wasn't in the wind, the fire, the earthquake, just be real careful that, that we don't let that become a formula that says he's not in those things because he was in those things before, remember? He was the fire that led the Israelites. He appears to Abraham as a rushing wind. The earthquakes when he comes down upon the mountain to speak to the children of Israel. He was in the storm. He was in those things before. He wasn't in those things this time, but then he's in those things again because on the day of Pentecost, they hear a sound like a mighty rushing wind filled the thing, and tongues of fire come over their head. And as Jesus dies, the earth quakes. Like, think about it. I think, I think these things are in here just so that we realize, like, just don't look for me always to do things the way that I did, but don't think because I did it before and I didn't do it that way, I wouldn't do it that way again. Like, keep your theology loose enough that God can be God and you can respond to him however he shows up. Yeah. You know, we, we talked about this a little bit last week. and I have these verses in here. and I, I w- No, that, that's a different message for a different time. Okay. Because if I go into that, we won't get back to this and I want to get to the end of this. But, but I think part of the reason is he's just trying to teach Elijah, like, even though I am the same God yesterday, today, and forever, don't always look for me to come in the way that I've come before. You may miss me in the way that I come. It's, it's why the Pharisees are looking at Jesus and saying, show us where the Messiah is. He's standing in front of them. Why? Because they had an idea of what it would look like when he came. And when Jesus came, he didn't fit their idea, so they couldn't see him, even though he's standing in front of them doing everything that was prophesied that he would do. Like, if I told you guys, hey, my brother's coming here. He's going to be wearing a blue hat. He's going to come through those doors. He's going to backflip down onto stage. And when he lands, he's going to shout, ta-da. And a dude comes through the doors with a blue hat on, backflips down the, the, down the center aisle, up on the stage, lands, throws his hands in the air, and says, ta-da. You wouldn't look at me and be like, so when's your brother coming? Why? Because he met every condition that I had already put out. Every single thing that I prophesied he was going to do, he did. And now he's standing in front of you, meeting every one of the conditions put forth. Jesus is standing in front of them, meeting every condition that was put forth by the prophets, from where he was born, to how he would be born, to what he would do when he was on the earth, to what signs would follow him, to every single thing lines up. He's standing in front of them. And they're saying, So when's he coming? Be careful that we don't build such a tight theology of what it looks like for God to do this or God to do that, no matter what it's based on, that God can't do it a different way without us saying that can't be God. All right, I'm going to. I said I wasn't, but I'm going to. I can can show you this just real quickly, biblically, and we'll talk about this more probably another time. But in John... um, 
uh, John chapter 14, verse 11, Jesus is talking. He says, believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works I do, he will do also. And greater works than these will he do because I go to the Father. John wrote this, right? So Jesus is standing in front of them. He's giving context for it. It's not like we're pulling this verse out of Jesus talking about something else. He says, if you don't believe the words that I say, at least believe the things that I've done. And I tell you the truth, the things that I've done, whoever believes in me, these things he will do and greater things because I go to the Father. This same John wrote this. This, in the end of his, his gospel, 20, uh, verse 25, or chapter 25, verse 24, this is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Amen. What things was Jesus talking about when he said, the things I've done, you'll do in greater? The things we've read about in the Word? Sure. The things we haven't read about in the Word? Have to. How do you know everything that he did? And why would you ever limit what God wants to do through you to simply what you've read in the Bible if Jesus said, everything that I've done, the things that I've done, you'll do in greater. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not knocking having a biblical basis and it has to look like the Father and it has, to, it has to line up with his character and nature. But I am saying, if you're saying, well, show me where Jesus did that in the Bible. Maybe I can't show you where he did that in the Bible, but I can show you where John said that he did a lot of things that aren't recorded in the Bible and I can show you where Jesus said the things that I did, you'll do too. Just make sure that our theology is big enough to include that maybe there's some things that we don't understand or we don't know and not to come against it just because I can't show you an exact example of Jesus doing it. Because by his own mouth, he said, there's probably going to be things that I did that you'll do that you can't read about. Just let that settle. I'm not calling for like, you know, weird unbiblical things, but I am saying like, let's just make sure our theology doesn't, isn't so tightly wrapped that we don't give God room to be God. That's it. So he gets Elijah, he says, he's, God says, what, 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 why are you here? And Elijah says, you know, this is what's going on. And God demonstrates who he is and then speaks. And then he calls Elijah again and says, what are you doing here? And Elijah's answer is the exact same. I've been very zealous for the Lord of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left. They seek to take my life. Same issues, same thing, but, but this time God responds differently to what he said. And I think that the reason why is because Elijah's heart has actually changed because he's heard the word of the Lord. And he's no longer saying these things from a man who's depressed and wants to die. He's saying these things as a man who believes that the one he's speaking to has the answer for what's going on in his heart. Has to. Because while man's looking at the outside, we're listening from the outside, and we're saying, he said the same thing. God's looking at his heart. And I think God sees in that moment, when I spoke to him, his heart changed. And even though he's still wrestling with the same things, he's no longer living in a place of, I want to die because of this. He's living in a place of, here's what's wrong, believing that God is the one who has the answer has to because God answers then the Lord said to him go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus and when you arrive anoint Haziel as king over Syria also you shall anoint Jehu the son of Nimshi as king over Israel and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel Mahola you shall anoint as prophet in your place it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Haziel Jehu will kill and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu Elisha will kill Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed them. 
He looks at Elijah and he says, okay, so now that your heart's in that place, I can tell you some things that maybe will change your perspective. Maybe, Elisha, you should consider that there's things that you don't know and that your perspective is limited and that I have answers that you haven't, to questions that you haven't even thought to ask. And he speaks to him and he gives him purpose. He says, here's what I have left for your life. Go do these things. Every time you hear the voice of the Lord speak, it should confirm and excite you that he has purpose in your life. It should bring this excitement of like, God still has a plan for me. God still has things for me to do. I'm still important. I still matter to the kingdom. My life has value. My life has purpose. If you ever get to a place where you feel like you don't have value and purpose, get alone with him and seek his heart and listen to him speak to you and show you that you do have value and you do have purpose. And he says to him, and he encourages him with truth. Now listen, so, so the very first time that Elijah said, there's no one left but me, I might as well go and die, the Lord doesn't come to him and say, actually, there's 7,000. Just be careful that you don't have an immediate answer for someone whose heart isn't ready to hear it yet. That's something I've learned the hard way as a pastor. Because I always want to give the answer straight from the word as soon as I hear the question, but sometimes it's not the question that actually matters, it's the heart behind the question that God's interested in. He did it. Might be wise for us too. But now that Elijah's heart is in a different place, now that he has seen a demonstration of God's power, now that he has heard God's voice, now that he's heard that there's still purpose, God can give him an answer to that question. He says, oh, and by the way, you're not alone. There's actually 7,000 that I've reserved for myself. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, all the things you've been worried about, they're really not that big a deal. I have an answer for them. And I have a plan for you and I have a purpose for you. And then he says this to him. I love that he starts it with this. And I'm just going to close with this. He says, go back the way that you came. Think about this. What's back the way that he came? People who are stiff-necked and don't want to listen to the word of the Lord and a queen who's given instructions for him to be killed. The very things he's running in fear from, God says, I want you to go back and face those things. Why? Has Jezebel repented? Have the people turned? What's changed? Elijah. He's heard the voice of the Lord. He knows why he's here. And he knows that God has things for him to do. And if God has things for him to do, no threat of Jezebel will keep him from it as long as he maintains his obedience. Hearing the voice of the Lord doesn't clean up every mess around you. It doesn't change every circumstance. God didn't say like, oh, go that way. Don't worry about Jezebel. I'm changed her heart. And the people have returned to me. God says, you go back the way that you came. Why? Because you're changed, not the circumstances. Because you now have answers in your heart that you didn't have. The, the thing that let you flee was not having answers in your heart. The thing that gives you the courage to walk back the way you came was the answer you have in your heart because you've heard the voice of the Lord. I have no idea the fear, the rejection, the questions, the uncertainty that anyone in this room faces. I know a few people because they've talked to me about them, but for the most part, but I bet there's the opportunity for that stuff going on in your life. I bet if you were to be alone with God and he said, why are you here? The things that would come out of your heart might surprise you. Might be a good idea to just get alone with him and pour out your heart to him. You might be amazed at how much truth comes out. You might be amazed that you actually believe more than you feel like you do in that moment. 
And you might be amazed that maybe there's something in there that he wants to speak to. I do know this. I know that whether or not the circumstances change, your heart will when you hear his voice. And you'll be able to walk through places that you ran from in fear without a slight bit of fear because you're walking with the knowledge of God. You're walking with the word of the Lord in your heart. And maybe, just maybe, the reason that you were threatened and the reason you ran in fear was because the enemy was actually afraid of what happens if you stay. Because he's terrified of what happens if you dig your heels in and say, yeah, but the Lord said this. When Jezebel breathes her threats that you turn, and not in your own strength and not because you're so brilliant and not because you trust in your own sword, but you just look and you think, you can't touch my life. God has a plan for me. I have to pick who's lying. At some point, Elijah would have to hear the threats of Jezebel and hear the promise of the Lord and decide which one was a liar. And then he would have to live his, voice, his life accordingly. Every one of us has that. Every single one of us faces things where there's the voice of the enemy and there's the voice of the Lord and we have to determine which one we believe is telling the truth and then live our lives accordingly. And the truth of the matter is, is a lot of times the circumstances don't change immediately. It would be a long time before the children of Israel returned to the Lord in their hearts. But Elijah wasn't living for the circumstances to change. He was living because he'd heard the voice of the Lord and he trusted him and wanted to obey him. So God, I just thank you that right now you're still the same God who spoke to Elijah on the mountain. Father, that for every one of your children who would curl up under a tree and think that there's nothing left for them, that you would come to them, Father. And they could pour out their hearts and you would be there to meet them where they're at. That you care, God, so much more than we ever knew and we ever understood. I just thank you for that. God, I ask if there's anyone in here that's facing a threatening Jezebel, that they would hear the voice of the Lord. That they would understand that their perspective isn't the entirety of the situation. That maybe there's more going on than what they can see. That when it looks like I'm surrounded, I'm actually surrounded by you. That when it looks like my enemies have surrounded me, they've actually just perfectly positioned themselves to be surrounded by your army, God. That they've placed themselves in the perfect spots for you to come and surround them all in one place round them up, and that with our eyes we only will look on and see the destruction of the wicked. God, I ask that you would encourage every heart in here right now in Jesus' name, that you would bless every person listening to this message with the knowledge that they can hear your voice, God, that they do hear your voice, that you do desire to speak to us, Father. And I pray against any discouragement or circumstantial things that would cause us to want to curl up under a tree and give up. We just say that you have value and you have purpose and you have so much more in front of you than what's behind you. In Jesus' name, amen.